Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. Today, Jimmy Fennessy and I are talking to Joe Flickinger, a high school history teacher outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, who is the vice president of the Green Township Historical Association and has written a few books on the history of the region. We're going to talk a bit about how to tackle local history, how to start the process of writing a book, and then wrap up with some recommendations of some of the cool things that we've come across lately. So what is your name and what do you do? My name is Joe Fligginger. I am a history high school history teacher, author, local historian, and vice president of the Green Township Historical Association. It's quite a list of credentials, Joe. Uh, can you give us a little bit of information on your background? How did you get interested in history? Where did you study? How did you become interested in the topics that you decided to write about? Absolutely. Um, well, I uh, went to Xavier University for my Bachelor of Arts in History. Um, I minored in secondary education, so went the, uh, went the, uh, the history teaching route. Um, you know, it, it probably the, one of the biggest things that really got me started in local history was getting close to the end, getting close to my student teaching at Xavier. Um, several of our history professors started talking about, um, you know, I guess you could say probably one of the uh, things they wanted to try was independent studies. Um, you're trying to get in and, and do some research in some of the local, um, I guess, uh, organizations. Um, you know, heard from some people from the Cincinnati Fire Museum, from Cincinnati Museum Center, different places like that. Um, at the time, I was, wor- believe it or not, working in a cemetery, which later became one of my books. And I had access to their primary sources which was a lot of old records going back to the 1860s, uh, in some cases, um, you know, going all the way forward to uh, the present day. So um, I was able to write the previously unwritten history of Bridgetown Cemetery at that point. Now, um, it was, it, looking back at it uh, from a, a graduate perspective, it really wasn't that great. Uh, it was very much just <laughs> a, a narrative uh, type of a history. Um, so that really got uh, the attention of the Green Township Historical Associate, Association and several others. Um, you know, they had me come out and do a presentation for them, and, and that kind of got me involved a little bit. Um, you know, going into my uh, profession as a history teacher, uh, I got my first master's, uh, an ME, MED in educational administration from Xavier. Um, the idea was not to be a principal or an assistant principal, it was to get into curriculum. Um, and unfortunately, um, as anybody would probably tell you, those are some of the first jobs that dry up when funding issues come in, into play, <laughs> at least at the, the public school level. So, um, you know, I kind of put those plans on hold. Um, and then I found the MA program at Southern New Hampshire University, um, where, as you said, I, uh, was able to concentrate in public history. So, um, and that became my, um, I guess kind of my, individual interest, the the things that, um, you know, I, I started kind of looking at uh, in some of the classes that I took, um, you know, more and more suburban history, how do suburbs come about, you know, what what's what's so big about suburbs, you know, what, what is it, uh, you know, where did they come from? Um, so that that was that really was a big interest of mine, um, you know, getting into publishing and getting into 
um, I guess the book realm, it was the, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Arcadia books uh, that deal with, um, they show a lot of pictures and little captions. Well, somebody had done one of those books for my local area and started, they, they started popping up in like the, the, the drug stores and the other bookstores book when they were still around. Um, and they, it, it was fascinating to me, but I said, well, what else was there? You know, what else is, you know, what else was there to the story? So, um, I started attending more of the, the historical meetings and, you know, kind of getting involved a little bit, uh, got involved in some of their website stuff and, and social media stuff. Um, and, and eventually kind of taking that stuff over and, um, you, it kind of went from there. The, um, you know, I wrote the, the book for my first book was on green township, um, the history of bicentennial history of green township. Um, and that led into my second book, uh, a, a history of, uh, Coring township. And then my third book, which obviously, um, I've had quite a bit of experience with, which is a, a history of Bridgetown cemetery. So, um, you know, it's been a long winding road <laughs> to, to say the least, but started early on in my academic career, uh, with the, with the whole local history slant. Yeah. And, uh, one of the things that really interests me about the stuff you're talking about here is the, is the local history angle. Um, the, one of the big challenges that we have in an online, uh, program, like this at the New Hampshire university is, convincing students that they need to access all of the available primary sources for their given topic. And the problem with that is that if you choose a topic that is too large, too broad, too national in scope, or even state in scope, the ability to access all the relevant primary sources, you know, that gets a lot harder because it gets more expensive. You have to travel, you very, you know, it's just a, a fraction of available sources that are available online. You actually have to go to physical places to do it. But if you're able to choose something that's local, odds are you're going to be, you're going to have more access to the local sources. Like you said, when you were working on your undergrad degree, you were able to go to all these various local sources, find all the cemeteries records, which I'm going to come, I want to circle back to because you said the narrative of the cemetery and that just intrigues me. I want to know what the story of a cemetery is, but <laughs> um, the, uh, so I, I'm really in, interested in the, the local history angle um, and how you, how you do local history. I guess maybe let's, maybe let's start there. You said that you have, a, that you got access to local sources. So how do you get started on a local history project like, like that? Gosh, um, where, where did it all come from? Where did it start? Um, you know, start with, start with those simple questions. Um, you know, Green Township is, is one of those areas in the Cincinnati, it surrounds Cincinnati. You know, today it's a, it's about a 10, maybe 15 minute drive with traffic, um, away from Cincinnati, you know, the medium sized Midwestern city. Um, and from the, from its start in the early 1800s and 1809, it was this, un, it, it was very much an unincorporated, very heavily wooded type of a place. The cemetery itself was, you know, that, I mean, that started in 1864. So um, you're talking 60 years. And while, you know, a lot of those, a lot of the, the forests and you know, the, the large overgrowth of, of everything that had been there for hundreds of years had gone, it had for the most part gone away. Um you know, it, it's kind of like so. So, where do you, where do you start? Who started it? You know, who were some of the people that that uh, that were incorporated into 
uh, the establishment of uh, these various different places and, and things and items and happenings. Um, you know, it's that's probably the biggest thing is just start with the with the simple questions. You know, who came there? What what was their reasoning? Where did they come from? Um, and why were they co- going there? And then one of the things that always interests me when I look at local history, when you have when you have questions like that, where did the town come from? Uh, when you're talking local, you tend to get some of the weird stories about how these things began. And so they'll be like, you know, someone did something and, you know, through all the various retellings over the years, it totally morphs into something completely different. Um I, I mentioned before we started recording that I'm that I'm in Westerville uh, outside of Columbus. And uh, the, one of the founding stories of Westerville is that there was this, the, um, you know, the, the, the first settlers, the first white settlers in the area were gathered around. And there were a couple of ruffians at a meeting that were like talking loudly and all that. And so the preacher got angry and picked up an axe and threw it over the roof of a, of a church to demonstrate his authority over the village or something and everybody was in so much awe that that guy became the leader of the village for umpteen years afterwards it doesn't make any sense but it's but it's just one of those weird stories that keeps popping up over and over whenever you go back and look at any of the old stories of the town <laughs> and so it feel i i always feel like that's one of the other interesting aspects of local history is that you get all the weird stories that um when you think about it, don't make a whole lot of sense, but it's kind of the, the, I mean, it's kind of like any origin myth, I suppose, or origin story that anybody would tell about their local community. They're always going to emphasize some parts of it and ignore some other parts of it. So it's, it's always kind of fun to, to look into the, the oddball stuff like that. Yes, it is. I, Green Township has its own oddball stories. Um, yeah, there, there's a, th- this was considered to be the Native American Shawnee's hunting ground, sacred hunting ground. Um, and throughout the, throughout the years, there had been the story that they called it, uh, I guess, Kaliga, um, is, is, and it's, it's been given the name, that name has been given to a park, to several other places in and around Green Township. Um, you know, so I did a little bit, bit of digging and, um, you know, there was a historian in the seventies around 1975, 1976, who, was really big in William Henry Harrison, but um, she did quite a bit in the early parts of Hamilton County, which is where Cincinnati and Green Township are located, um, down the southwest corner of uh, southern Ohio. And um, it was it basically, um, you know, she she brought out this idea that Caliga probably is not what it means, which the story was it means pretty hand, and or sorry, pretty land is is the best way to put it. Um, so, you know, it kind of makes sense. It was mainly rural, um, you know, kind of rolling, you know, fields and, you know, all of grain and you know, all the different kinds of things that you would, you would think of. Um, so I did a little bit of digging, uh, got in touch with somebody who was an Algonquin language specialist. Um, I think at Indiana, one of the Indiana universities, um, said, well, it could be that, but then it also could be pretty hand, which was, something that had been talked about by that historian in the mid seventies, where it was supposedly the way it looked was there was a, a kind of a, a big Creek. And if you looked at the big Creek, it would almost kind of look like the, the little rivulets or streams, you know, kind of coming off of the bit. So said it, it could be one, it could be the other kind of a strange. I mean, that's, that's one of those strange local stories that 
most people would be like, really? That's that's a thing? But people legitimately argued over that. <laughs> you know, when I hear about, when you said the the narrative of the uh, of the cemetery, a couple of things, like questions come to mind. One is, what's one of the weirdest things that you read about? But two, I think through, so when I was younger, my favorite book was Dracula. I actually just went back and reread it. Um, so Highgate Cemetery always comes to mind, which always then brings up the idea of the Victorians and their weird um, rituals of picnicking in cemeteries and, and everything during the 1800s. So um, I'd just be interested in hearing, you know, what what are some of the, the weirdest things? Is there anything that that replicates that Victorian experience, maybe not in Puritan America, but but what are some weird things in the narrative? Well, <clears throat> probably one of the, I, just looking at the different kinds of headstones that you would find, I and mean, it, it's, it's not strange, it's not macabre, but things that you don't see now on headstones, um, and this kind of lends itself into what my thesis was showing was, the older part of the cemetery, which was established in 1864, um, has these beautiful headstones that have all kinds of symbols and um, lots of different kinds of um, figures and, I guess, just all kinds of different things that mean different things. Um, an urn with a veil over it was supposed to symbolize, um, I guess, the veil, like this veil between heaven and earth. Um, you would have, um, obelisks all over the place that were supposed to be kind of like a beacon to God amongst other things. There's all kinds of different symbols that could mean different kinds of things. Um, probably one of the most interesting things that I guess you could say came from that Victorian kind of late 1800s, early 1900s was we actually have a tree stone, um, a headstone that looks like basically kind of like a, an old tree stump. Um, and it was meant to symbolize, amongst other things, a life cut short. Um, and this was a, uh, a woman who died in her 40s. Um, her husband was buried there later on. Um, and kind of getting into the, the interesting aspect of that, this guy, looking through the records, I found out he was remarried, but his second wife was buried clear across the other side of the cemetery. So I... <laughs> I have no idea why I tried looking into, you know, to see if I could find relatives, but, um, you know, there was, there was nothing there, even in, um, different kinds of obituaries and things like that. There was really nothing that, that you could find to, <laughs> to kind of put those pieces together. Um, the interesting thing about those tree stones is that they can be found in Sears and Roebuck, uh, catalogs as well. So they were actually quite common in a lot of Victorian cemeteries. So, while it might not be macabre, uh, it's it's definitely you come upon it, it's like whoa, what is this? You know, and there's 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 ivy down the bottom, and that was meant to symbolize one thing, and you know, there's there's lots of different kinds of things that you can just pick up uh, with the symbols. Whereas you go to more of a modern cemetery, and everything's you know for the most part you've got two or three different kinds of headstones, and nothing is kind of out of the ordinary, and um, it's, it's just very interesting to see the way that they celebrated the life of, of a lot of the different individuals that were buried there. So when you were talking about the narrative of the, of the cemetery, uh, what, do, what do you mean by that? What, what, how, did you, how did you piece together a story and what is the, what is the story you were telling about it? Well, what, what really got me interested in finding out what was going on is 
since I've worked there, um, you know, I, and I, all I did, I was a, I was a groundskeeper. So I'd go around trimming around headstones and, you know, mowing the lawn and taking care of flower beds and things like that. Um, the, the accepted date for the cemetery's establishment at that time was 1875. That was as far back as the records went. Well, I'm seeing headstones of people who are buried in 1869, um, you know, going all the way back to, I think the earliest that I've seen is 1864. And that is, that, that really started to make my, my mind wander as you're going around on, on zero turn uh, mowers and you know, things like that. Um, so as I started digging, I found in deed records that uh, it was actually established in June of 1864. Um, a number of, and actually on the deed, it lists the, uh, the first trustees of the cemetery, the board of trustees. So um, they were technically the first, I guess you could say, owners or purchasers of the property. Um, going back, it was, the, the property was, you can go back to the, uh, I believe it's uh, Jacob Burnett and a big, huge firm uh, that also included William Henry Harrison that originally owned that land. So big land speculators in that part of Cincinnati. So, um, you know, kind of moving forward, that that was really, really big, was establishing that in 1864, you've got a, a new cemetery established. Um, and it was established as a completely different name than what it goes by today. It's actually the first German Protestant cemetery of Green Township is what it was established as. So that, that was a really neat and, and interesting kind of a thing. It's like, well, it just goes by Bridgetown Cemetery today. You know, it, that's it's just a, a little suburb of, of Cincinnati. Um, you wouldn't think that a cemetery would even change its name. So, you know, when you're when you're looking for for different kinds of things, there's there's a receiving vault that was built, um, <clears throat> which if you don't know what a receiving vault is, that is it, it almost kind of looks like a big chapel type building. Um, it was meant to this might be a little bit macabre, more macabre, almost kind of a, a Dracula type thing yeah, meant on. to hold. Yeah, absolutely. It was meant to hold bodies um, before funeral homes. Um, if the ground was too hard or uh, during the winter, or it was too hot to be able to get a grave dug in enough time so that you had a cool place to store them so that things didn't start happening um, that normally happened, um, they could store them there. It was under lock and key, and you know, nobody was going to go there and, and bother it anyway. So, um, you know, that, that, those are the, some of the, the early little things that you see. Um, the, the board minutes are interesting because they're written in German. And while I'm okay with German, um, they're written in a German script. Um, and for the listeners out there, there's, there's current, there's Gothic, you know, all kinds of different German scripts. So it can make it very, very interesting trying to figure out what, uh, when, it, when you're transcribing the records, trying to figure out what they're saying is, is definitely interesting. Let's put it that way. Probably one of the things that budding historians actually never think about when they think about resources and accessing resources. Sure, they think about, you know, depending on if it's in a foreign language, um, but you have the added hurdle of foreign language and script. So that um, it's like a double challenge for you when you're really trying to access and decipher primary sources. It, it was. It, it absolutely was. Um, one, once you have some of those dates down, though, I mean, it, it does become a little bit easier. Um, you, you can kind of tie in different kinds of things with 
events that happened. Um, and, and the story starts to come together. You know, it's little bits and pieces and you're weaving it in within Green or Green Township history, Cincinnati history. That's where things start to come to life. And you can start to see where those things, you, you take these little bits and pieces, put them all together in that general narrative and, and things really start to come alive, if you will. Yeah, deciphering handwriting is one of the biggest obstacles in the historical profession. When um, my my dissertation was on, you know, mid 20th century, uh, and so all of my stuff was typed memos and all that. So I had it really easy. But when I was in grad school, I had some office mates who were trying to look through, you know, Jesuit records from Peru in the 1680s or something. And they would just be beating their heads against a wall trying to figure out what this word is because the sentence doesn't make sense without this one word. <laughs> so they would be like, try, they would be like calling every other possible, uh, you know, old Spanish historian that's around there saying, please God, tell me what this word is because it's just, I just can't understand it. It's yeah. That's one of those obstacles that you never think about until you're confronted with it and realize that you have to make sense of what this, this chicken scratch is. That's 200 years old or whatever. And that's literally what a lot of it looked like was chicken scratches. I mean, until you came to a date and it's almost kind of like they, they slowed down to write the date so that you can recognize it. And then they started going quicker and quicker and quicker with what they were writing. So, um, and, and interestingly enough, it, the, the records themselves didn't start transitioning to English until the early 1920s. And that was when they had a changeover in secretary treasurer for the cemetery itself. So, um, you know, it wasn't because of the, I guess the, the furor over, um, you know, all the, the, the anti-German sentiment that came out of world war one, it was, they just had a changeover in, uh, the person who was keeping the records. So that, that was an interesting little thing. You know, you, you saw a lot of streets in Cincinnati change names, uh, as a result of world war one, um, going from a German name to an English, more of an anglicized or American type name. Now, I mean, you did not see that in Green Township. So that was, that was very surprising. Now, where, where did you actually find all of these board records? And you were looking through property records. It sounds like, were you looking, was this like a County archive or was it actually, did the cemetery still hold these records? Where did you actually come across the primary sources that helped you to kind of piece all this stuff together? I was lucky in that the cemetery had everything there. Um, they had kind of, sort of, a copy of the deed. It was bits and pieces of some. I mean, it was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, but it was still there. So um, going and finding the deed was just a matter of going down to the uh, county recorder's office and trying to figure out Hamilton County's system and go from there. Um, the cemetery itself has all their burial records, all of their... Uh, board meeting minutes, um, everything saved there. So some of the earliest ones are not necessarily in the best of shape. Um, the records themselves go back to 1875. Um, where the ones from 1874 to 1864 are, your guess is as good as, as mine. Um, but um, you know that's that's kind of one of those things that's lost to history. It's more than likely they're probably in someone's attic or basement in a trunk somewhere. Um, you're probably wondering what that they think is a diary is or you know, something along those lines. But, um, you know, so I was very lucky. They had a lot of old brochures, um, quite a few more pictures than I would have expected. Um, you know, especially from, 
um, just a, an old, what started as an old country cemetery. So that, that was actually going to be my next question. Um, this might just be my ignorance about the history of cemeteries and how they're organized. You know, I should be an expert on this, but, um, but the fact that it was incorporated and had a board of trustees suggests to me that it wasn't a cemetery that was a, um, a church cemetery. It sounds like it was more like a county, either a, a town, a county or a city cemetery. Um, was that abnormal at the time that cemeteries wouldn't be aligned with a, with a church and a congregation? Or was that kind of, um, was that the norm because churches might not have as much property as they would need in order to have a cemetery? Um, it, it was, uh, I get, honestly, Green Township's a little bit more Roman Catholic, still is a little bit more Roman Catholic than, uh, than other areas of, of, uh, I guess the greater Cincinnati area. I mean, greater Cincinnati's still a, a heavily Roman Catholic area, but, um, Green Township's very much so. Um, a lot of the things that I saw written were, um, you know, things talking about having a place to bury their own, um, they actually, the cemetery actually, what was it, about uh, four or five years later in 18, I think it was about 1871, uh, that they donated land for a church that was made up of a lot of the same people um, who were burying their, their relatives there called the First German Protestant, or First German Protestant Church of Green Township. So they made it very similar. The, their physical properties are right next to each other. Um, but it was actually the cemetery that started first and then later went into more of a, I guess, a religious aspect, but they never were other than donating the property and having people that were buried there from that church and everybody that came from, you know, throughout that were Protestant at first, uh, throughout the green township area. Um, you know, that it was, they were very separate, uh, operated separate, um, didn't necessarily, um, you know, I guess go hand in hand with each other, which you would have thought if they're sharing the same name, sharing, you know, a lot of the same people that are on their board served on their church board or, you know, whatever, the, whatever they did. So it was just interesting uh, to see that. Um, you, you, you think about say Roman Catholic churches, um, you know, they're, they very much run it and do all the things that they do with, you know, with being according to the Roman Catholic practices and, that was not the case here. So it was, it was definitely interesting. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about some of your other projects. I know that you, you've, uh, you said you published three books, you're working on your fourth now. Um, so what are some of the other projects you've uh, worked on? One of the, one of the uh, very, very interesting things um, that, uh, that I did was um, taking um I, uh, I'll, I'll, and I'll just talk about the one that I'm, I'm working on right now, um, which is I scanned the records of that church that I mentioned um, and scanned them for the church themselves. Um, they just celebrated their 150th anniversary. Um, and that was just neat and really interesting as a public historian uh, practicing in the field to be able to go in and, and look at these things, these records and see some of the same names coming in from Green Township's history and and things like that. So that was probably one of the the neatest things that I got to do very very recently. Um, an ongoing one that I have also is on the fire department, the history of the fire department. That that will be my fourth book. Um, they started off in the mid nineteen forties as a 
volunteer fire department grew out of a civil defense group um, in the Green Township area um, and very quickly grew into this big, huge fundraising juggernaut of protecting the people because there was no fire protection in this part of Hamilton County and outside of Cincinnati. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see the growth of these areas, just tremendous growth, um, just with these current projects that I've done, uh, both the, the digitization aspect, as well as the, the, um, the, the research and the writing of my current book. So fire history of fire departments is always amazing, especially if you, if you can get back far enough into the 19th century and all of that, when, you know, you would have brawls between rival fire departments, at least, at least in the bigger cities. Like I know that out in San Francisco, uh, there were there were a bunch of rival uh, fire departments where there was a fire and multiple departments would show up and they would start fighting each other <laughs> for the ability to put out the fire <clears throat> because they would then get to charge the owner for putting out the fire. And um so I, I, at least in some of the some of the larger cities, evidently some of these battles were just epic that would just rage in the streets between fire departments trying to uh, wrestle up business. Meanwhile, the building's on fire, but they're fighting with each other to be able to be, to put the fire out. So it, it, <laughs> the history of fire departments is it, there's there's a lot of fun to be had there. I think we need Martin Scorsese uh, to make a film about it. I'm just, I don't know why he hasn't yet, actually. <laughs> There's, um, interestingly enough, that, that happened in, in Cincinnati as well, uh, before their professional fire department was established. Um, happened in the early 1800s, but I, I believe it was 1853 when Cincinnati's was established as a professional fire department. But, um, you know, just very, it, it is very interesting. You know, you can tie the growth of the area to things like cemeteries and fire departments and churches and and things like that. And, and that just kind of brings alive that whole local aspect of history in general. Yeah. And so you mentioned um, when you were talking at the beginning of all this, the when you're talking about your books, um, the there's the Arca Arcadia Press that we all know of, which which are generally collections of photographs with captions, um, which are interesting. Um, I've got a couple of those of various places that I've lived and all of that. Um, but those are, like I said, they're very photo heavy with just kind of short captions. There's really not a whole lot of narrative or analysis or interpretation. It's basically you just read all these various captions and kind of you just kind of piece it together over time, uh, which has for many places, since there's so many of those books out there, that those have kind of become almost the norm for local history, at least lately. Uh, but it sounds like you're 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 doing you're actually doing kind of an actual book <laughs> with text and, and analysis and all of that in in yours <clears throat> excuse me and i believe you said that yours are being published by heritage press or history press Her heritage books yes okay. and so uh can you tell us a little bit about the the process for you know how do you how do you write these the, these books and how do you how do you go about getting them published and um, just what's kind of the, the, the how to for folks out there that are looking to get into publishing uh, local history books like that, that aren't just collection of photos and captions? Well, starting with the smaller publishers um, is probably the way to go. Um, when I started, it was 20, 2010. Um, and, you know, here I am, I, yeah. I'm just a history teacher. You know, I, I didn't do anything 
in particular was just went to a few hist local history meetings, um, heard some speakers. That was about it. Um, when I saw that book, you know, it really got got my wheels turning. Um, just started researching some of the smaller book publishing places and seeing where what they did, if they accepted proposals, ideas, um, went to a couple of books on how to write books, um, which those were no help. Uh, they you just look through at the library. Um, and then I just started writing, you know, started researching, putting things together, working with, with Green Township Historicals, um, a, a couple of their volunteers, and just started putting things together, put together a nice little proposal. There was, there was probably 20 to 25 smaller publishers that I proposed to. Didn't really hear back from many um, until I heard back from Heritage. They were interested. Um, and it, it was it was off to the off and running at that point. They provided the, I guess, the the individual format, uh, the the things, how they wanted things to go, how they want, you know, how they wanted things set up. Um, but, uh, you know, once you get that contract, it's it's off to the races. It's let's get this done. Let's get it published and, and get it out there. So um, it and, and that's probably the biggest thing is is just stay on the course uh, for anybody out there that, that wants to do that. If you're really interested in that topic, you know, get some things together, have some good, uh, a good pitch is a good way to put it. Um, and, you know, explain to them why they should publish it. Um, the pub as we all probably know, the publishers are taking on the brunt of the cost of publishing. You know, they're getting ISBN numbers and they're doing all the, 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 the covers and paying people to do the different things that they do. So, um, you know, the smaller publishers are, are taking on that, that monetary risk. Um, but at the same time, it is, it's just neat to, to be able to look yourself up in a library as, as, as well. Um, but at, on, on the flip side of that, it's great because you can say to kids now, well, there's a book there in the library that you can go look up some of that information. So it's well worth it. It's well worth the hassle. It's well worth the research. It's well worth the, um, I guess just keeping at it. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's probably the biggest thing that I, I piece of advice that I could give to somebody. Hopefully that was not too rambling. <laughs> no, that, that, that was good. Um, yeah, because the, and I'm glad you brought up the whole proposal process because that's one of the, cha another challenge that I, I run into a lot when I'm teaching this stuff um, at, at the grad level is the idea that you have to convince somebody to want to publish your work or you have to convince a museum to let you set up an exhibit or you have to, you have to convince somebody to let you do this stuff. You don't get to just, you know, type something up and it magically gets published. You have to go through the proposal process and that's, and that's a, that's a challenge. It's hard. It's, it's, you know, that's not what all of us get into this game to do. And so it's hard to kind of move away from just jumping straight into writing the book or writing the paper or the, you know, the thesis or the dissertation or whatever, you have to write up the proposal first where you lay out, this is why, you know, this is the topic. This is why it's important. This is why people are going to actually read this book. And that's the other thing that a lot of people don't really think about is that you have, you, 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 it's no good writing a book that no one's going to read. It's going to be a waste of your time 
and then if nobody reads it, then, you know, so be it. I mean, there's not really much point in going through all that effort. So, so you have to convince, you know, that people are going to be interested in this, that it's significant, that, and that's, that's hard for uh, people to kind of think about because that's, that's, you know, when you're reading all these history books over the years, you're not reading the proposals that went into the books, you're just reading the book. And so it kind of becomes natural to think that, well, the book just kind of, you know, there's this virgin birth where it just magically appears there. Uh, but they don't know all of the stuff that went on behind the scenes with the proposal and all that. So I'm glad you, you you mentioned the proposal because I teach the first half of the capstone class, which is all about the proposal. And it's hard to get students to realize what they're doing with the proposal. So I'm going to just play that over and over when I'm teaching that class from now on. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> Those are really cool things to talk about. And so I'm, I'm I'm going to see if I can find some of your books because uh, uh, those sound really cool. But in the meantime, can you, do you have any recommendations for us this week? Well, one book that I found over the pandemic um, was a, a book I believe was published around February or March of 2020. It's called You Never Forget Your First by Alexis Coe. Um, it is a biography of George Washington, and it is set through the lens of a female historian studying George Washington, um, looking at some of the things that he did, why did he do things certain ways, all through the lens of a female historian. And while that's not something that is um, uncommon today, uh, for George Washington, apparently it is very uncommon. Uh, lots of male historians have looked at him, but not many female. So I found the book very, very, very interesting. It's not a long read. It's a little over 300 pages. So it took me a couple days, uh, but then I enjoy reading about George Washington. So um, those that are George Washington fans that would love to see him in a different light, uh, doesn't paint him in any way negative, just a different way of looking at him. So um, I would highly recommend it as as one of those, uh, Not that, let's not say pandemic reads, let's say, uh, I guess a snowstorm type read, if that, uh, if that is uh, what you have in your area <laughs> of the country. Um, I've got another one. Um, this one is called Cemetery Tours and Programming, a Guide. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, those that are interested uh, in the local history area in doing things with their individual cemeteries, this book has been fantastic. Um, you know, not only does it help you kind of set up tours, um, not only historical tours, but Halloween tours, Jimmy, for you. Um, some of those different kinds of things, but it also kind of brings to light some of the things that you want to think about when you're doing this type of programming, um, which includes sensitivity to some of the people that are going to be in those individual places that are not there for the tours. Um, obviously, cemeteries can be a place of mourning and of extreme sadness for some people. Um, so it, it kind of gives you some nice little tips and tricks on how to market things like this in order to help people understand the, the areas where they live. Well, um, th those sound like really cool books. I'm going to uh, recommend a book also. It's called um, An Atlas of Extinct Countries. I'm going to hold it up to the camera so you guys can see it. But of course, none of the people who are actually listening to the podcast will be able to see it. But it's a book by Gideon Defoe. It was just published last year. And what this is is doing is it's, is it's collecting a bunch of short very short, like two to three page um, histories of extinct countries, countries that have existed at various times throughout history, but no longer exist. 
And so uh, Gideon Defoe is the author. He is he's not a historian. Um, so there's no grand, you know, there's no grand interpretations or there's no kind of historiographical debates at play here. This is simply, uh, you know, two to three pages on each of these extinct countries kind of talking about how they came into being, uh, what are interesting details about it, and then why did it come to an end? And so it's collecting about, looks like it's got 48 of these extinct countries in there, ranging from, uh, you know, the Kingdom of Bavaria to the Islands of Refreshment. Uh, the cause of death of the Islands of Refreshment, by the way, was a boating accident because there were four guys that, that were the in, entire inhabitants of the Islands of Refreshment. Three of them died in a boating accident, and the fourth just left. And at that point, the country ceased to exist. That's just one of them. Um, there's other ones where the, the, the cause of death was alcohol. There was a cause of death where two guys got into a fight, and then the country ceased to exist. There's a whole bunch of them in here where the cause of death was simply Napoleon came in and just took the country away from them so it's an interesting little book uh it's a fast read like i said each uh, each of those extinct countries gets a good two or three pages in there um it's got some some kind of goofy drawn maps and a couple of odd um drawings in it it's not a serious book by any means it's very tongue-in-cheek but it's an easy read it's it's a fun read uh when you're um you know stuck inside again let's not say pandemic let's say you're stuck inside because it's too hot outside or something for now but anyway the island the island an atlas of extinct countries by gideon defoe uh okay so that's my recommendation um let's see jimmy did you come up with anything sure so um i have not really been doing much history reading lately um and this is kind of a pre-recommendation versus a recommendation on something that I've actually experienced. But I have tickets for next Monday to a documentary called All the Streets Are Silent by Jeremy Elkins. Um, and it's a look at the convergence of um, hip hop and skateboarding in Manhattan in the um, 1980s and 1990s. So um, it places me, that's probably right when I was coming up as a skateboarder too. So I can imagine myself in this historical documentary, um, maybe not in the place, but definitely having the same influences. Uh, very excited to see it because it was really a transformative time in skateboarding, uh, transition to street skating. Um, the, like it says, the convergence of different subcultures in skateboarding. So I will report back on my experience watching it, but I'm very excited to see it. All right. Uh, well, thank you for the recommendations. And Joe, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I, I had a great time. Definitely. Thanks, Joe. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, Podbean, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at workinghistorians and on Twitter at workhistorians. For Joe Flickinger and Jimmy Fennessy, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>